Well, join me in prayer. Father, at the crest of a new year, we give ourselves freshly to you. We pray that you would indeed have your way with us, that we might be marked by unity, by faithfulness to you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would indeed work in us as you have been for so long, as you have been working in your church for thousands of years. Jesus, we pray that you would be praised, that you would be honored by our gathering this Sunday and every Sunday moving forward. We pray that our eyes would indeed be fixed on you. Father, we thank you for your tender mercies that you've given us, giving us breath again this morning, giving us a people to worship and serve you alongside. And so may you be near to us this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, it's a new year, obviously, um, but there are many new things happening over these next few weeks, and so um, real quickly, let me give you kind of a, a rundown of, of what to expect over these next few weeks. So here we are uh, on January 2nd, the first Sunday of 2022, yeah, and we are kicking that off by gathering and worshiping our King and our Savior. I can't think of a better way to start the new year, and so there's that. Uh, but this is also not only the first Sunday of a new year, but this is also the first Sunday of a new month. And if you've been around long at all, you know that one of the things, the, the rhythm here, is the first Sunday of each month we participate in communion together, and so we'll get to do that a little bit later in the service. So this is a Sunday morning full of good things. So there's all those new things happening today. Next Sunday, January 9th, we will get to install a new elder. So I'm excited about that. Uh, if you haven't heard, hopefully you have, but in December at our members meeting, the church voted to approve Justin Garcia as the newest elder, the newest pastor. And so next Sunday, we'll be installing him. He'll be making promises, and we'll be praying over him, and so I'm excited for that. And then the following Sunday, January 16th, Lord willing, uh, Pastor Justin will be back here, and we'll be kicking off uh, a study in the book of James to uh, be going through for the first part of 2022. So a lot of new things happening over these next few weeks. Uh, that's something to kind of give you an idea of what to expect over the next three weeks. This morning, though, uh, we are going to be in the little book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a book that doesn't get a whole lot of traction in, in many churches today, but we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is a short book, only five chapters. So if you get to the book of Jeremiah, a little bit larger book, 51 chapters, you haven't gone quite far enough. If you get to Ezekiel, you've gone just too far. And so in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel is the little book of Lamentations. So we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verses in 22. We'll read 22, 23, and 24. I'll give you just a moment to find your way there. Lamentations chapter 3, 
I'm going to start reading in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. These verses, if you don't know anything else about Lamentations, these are some verses you are likely to have encountered. Often they get put on coffee cups or on t-shirts, but far from a coffee cup verse, this is something really, really different. See, we're used to encountering these with kind of a nice, peaceful image in the background. Wake up in the morning, his mercies are new, you sit in your easy chair beside the window, there's some gentle light streaming in as you hold a warm beverage in your hand. As you lift it up, you see his mercies are new every morning written on there, and you open up your Bible, you've got your journal to the right of it, assuming you're right-handed, and there is this gentle, easy, comfort, happy pleasantness that gets associated with these verses. Everything feels peaceful and quiet. At least that's how we've been trained to think about these verses. But I want you to notice this. These verses are found in the little book called Lamentations. It's a word we don't use much, but you may be familiar with the first part of that word, lament. That's what this book is. It is a collection of laments nestled together, and that, friends, is a task an art that we are woefully unfamiliar with. You see, we are a people who've lost the ability to lament, to sorrow, or to grieve. We're a people who tend to find ourselves shocked when tragedy strikes. We've kind of lulled ourselves into sleep thinking that the normal pattern of life is one of comfort, and ease, and if those aren't true, then something must be wrong, right? At least that's, that's true of us middle-classers in, in the West. We've lived comfortable for a long time, and if you doubt just how far we've moved from the ability to lament, I want you to think about what happens when somebody dies. What do we do? We gather everybody together, and we hold a What? A celebration of life. Why do we do this? We do this because even at the point where lament and sorrow and mourning is the natural response, we put a lid on it, close it up, and say, no, no, no. We don't do that here. We're going to find something to celebrate. And we're going to celebrate their life. Now, don't get me wrong. Hopefully when someone dies, there is much to celebrate and honor about the way that they have lived their life. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only response that should happen when we lose someone. This is a time when we should be able to mourn, to lament, but we have lost that ability. And I want you to notice this. This book, Lamentations, raises laments that are so severe that the very last verse Lamentations ends with raises a painful question, perhaps the most painful question in all 
of the Bible. And so let me just show you this. I'm going to pick up in verse 20 of chapter 5. This is where the book ends, by the way. Not where it starts or not where it gets to in the middle, but this is the note it leaves on. Lamentations 5 verse 20 says this. Why do you, God, forget us how long? Forever. Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. That's that's the hope. But verse 22, the last verse says this, unless, here's the painful possibility, you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The question left on the hearers of Lamentations is, have you, O God, forever cast us off? You see, far from a patched over, smoothed over, happily ever after that refuses to look pain and sorrow and grief in the face, Lamentations boldly leads God's people to stare unblinkingly in the face of sadness and sorrow and grief. You see, this book comes into existence in dark days. And I don't mean dark days like you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, or dark days like you find yourself confused, or you've lost a friend, or something like this, but I mean deep, deep, dark days. The situation that inspired the book of Lamentations was God's people found themselves in exile. Foreign nation had come into Jerusalem, had ransacked the cities, burnt houses, destroyed property, stolen things, raped women, enslaved children, killed young men, and left the old and the poor to sit and watch. That's what was going on right before Lamentations. That's the dire situation that leads to this book coming into existence. And on top of all of that, the temple also was desecrated and destroyed. And remember, the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is where God's law was taught. This is where sacrifices were offered. This is where forgiveness was proclaimed. And when the temple was done away with, everything that the people thought they knew about their relationship with God and about God's ways in God's world found itself overturned and undone, and the people were left with nothing but hopelessness. And in the midst of all of that, that's what leads to the painful question in Lamentations 5, 20-22 that we just read. And that's the situation. How's that for some encouragement to start your new year? But I want you to notice this. This unyielding grief is not chaos. Unyielding grief in lamentations is not the same as chaos. And here's why. The one who penned the book of Lamentations trusted in the sovereign and good God who brings order out of chaos. 
He's done this over and over and over again, and Lamentations trusts that he will do it again. When everything around the Lamentist is in chaos and disarray and pain, the poetry is not. So let me show you this. You can't quite see it in your English, but Lamentations is orderly, organized, fascinating, fascinating poetry. If you know much about Lamentations, you may already know this, but Lamentations is a collection of poems, and they're all neatly organized in an acrostic. Now, if you don't know what an acrostic is, an acrostic is where you start with the first letter of the alphabet, you say your, your verse or your line, and then you go to the next letter. And so for us, we'd start with A, then we'd go to B, then we'd go to C, and each one would be done like this. And so if you look in Lamentations, the first chapter has 22 verses. That's because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with the first letter. Each verse starts a, a new letter. And so by the time you get to the end of chapter one, you've gone through the whole Hebrew alphabet. It's organized. It's orderly even though everything else is chaos. If you turn to chapter 2, you'll notice it also has 22 verses. Why is that? The same thing. Starts with the first letter, ends with the last letter. If you go to chapter 3, you notice something different. Chapter 3, the center of the book, the heart, has 66 verses. Well, why 66? Well, Lamentations 3 does what Lamentations 1 and 2 does, but does it Three times. So the first three verses are the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, three times. Then the second letter, three times, on and on and on. So you get to verse 66. Chapter 4, back to 22 verses. One letter for each verse. Chapter 5 is interesting. Chapter 5, coming on the heels of chapters 1 through 4, loses all orderliness. Chapter 5's poetry has nothing organizing it. It is chaos. And the point is this. Chapter 5 is what the world looks like at that moment. It looks like chaos. It looks like pain. And Lamentations 5 says, here is where we are. Nothing makes sense. All seems hopeless. Pain is on my left. Pain is on my right. Grief is above me and below me and behind me and in front of me. And it seems that there is nothing that we can hope in or that we can find rock sturdy or solid. But even Lamentations 5 finds itself in the collection of laments that breathes order, purpose, and hope into the hopelessness of Lamentations chapter 5. And nestled right into the middle of all of Lamentations, the middle verses are Lamentations 3, verses 31 to 33. Let me read those for us before we circle back around to our original verses for this morning. Here's what Lamentations 3, 31 to 33 say. For the Lord will not cast off forever. You hear that? That's the answer to the question that ends the book. Has the Lord cast us off forever? Verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. In chapter 3, the Lamentus is still thinking clearly. Here's the hope that roots it all. Verse 32, but though he caused grief, what? He will have compassion. How much compassion? Well, compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And where does the abundance of God's steadfast love stop? You got me. 
That's how much compassion he will have. Verse 33, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That's the God that is worshipped here. And so just a few short verses before that, let's go back to our verses for this morning. Verses 22 to 24. That's kind of the context that all this is in. This is not sitting in an easy armchair with a warm cup of coffee and a Bible spread and the gentle light streaming in. This is the world in chaos. This is everything you thought you knew turned on its head. This is your family died, your house burnt, your possessions stolen, and your temple destroyed. Here's what the Lamentist says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now these verses take on a different feel, do they not? When you think about the backdrop The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Well, I suspect that for someone who just endured what the people of God endured, they might be asking the question, when did the steadfast love of the Lord ever start? But in trust, the Lamentus declares, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, but I suspect that someone in his shoes will be tempted to say the only thing that's new every morning is more pain and more grief and more sorrow and more confusion. But the Lamentus says, no. Great is your faithfulness. Even in the midst of all that is happening, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Here's the truth that endures through the rubble. If you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down and hang on to it for the year. Your current situation is not the measure of God's faithfulness. You hear me? Your current situation isn't the measure of God's faithfulness. That's true right now. That's true next week, next month, next year, next century. This is true when things are going good. When you have lots of friends, and when you get good grades in school, and when your family feels at peace, and your marriage is a pleasant place of refuge, when your health is good and you feel good about your purpose in life and your job is on track and your family is good. This is true even then, that your current situation isn't the measure of God's faithfulness. In fact, when things are going good, God may be being particularly merciful to you. But this is also true when things are going bad and when your grades fall off and you don't make the team. When your children don't listen. When your marriage is a place of pain and confusion and heartache. When you lose your job. When you feel purposelessness or meaninglessness. When your health ebbs away and you look up and it feels like the roof is caving in around you. 
God is not less faithful in those times. In fact, God may be demonstrating his mercy to you even in those times. I don't know all of you equally well in here, but let me let you in on a little secret. No matter what's going on in your life right now, it's not worse than what was going on in Lamentations 3. Right? Like, no matter what you are enduring right now, it is not worse than Lamentations 3. So here, here's the question then. If our current situation isn't the measuring stick of God's faithfulness, then what is? And here's the answer. God is. God is the measuring stick of God's faithfulness. Friends, this is where you would do well to devote yourself to reading your Bibles. Let me beg you. Devote yourself this year to reading your Bible. And here's one reason why. How is it that the lamentist can explain Claim what he does in Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, when his situation is what it is. Well, when God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, their age was not the measure of God's faithfulness. Sarah's formerly being barren wasn't the measuring stick of God's faithfulness. Or when Abraham's descendants found themselves enslaved in Egypt, their slavery wasn't the measuring stick of God's faithfulness. God was. And many did find themselves dead in that slavery, right? They didn't all escape. Some were born in that slavery cried out to the God of their forefather Abraham, and then died in, in slavery. But God was still faithful through it. He delivered them from it. And, and when God's people then found themselves in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, their current situation was not the measuring stick of God's faithfulness. God was, and God provided for them. You ever read your Bible and find yourself wondering, why do God's people keep talking about their history? Why do they keep always looking back and rehearsing this? Well, the reason that they keep doing this is because their history gives hope and purpose to their present situation. There's a common thread here. God's faithfulness at every point doesn't lead his people around the wilderness, but through it. And the lamentist knew this. It's why way down deep in his bones, he declares what he does in Lamentations 3, even though he then ends at Lamentations 5. It's because even when he's asking the questions that we think you probably shouldn't ask that question, deep down in his bones, he knows that the God that he's crying out to is the God who is faithful, the God who is trustworthy, the God who sticks with his people, and the God who will not abandon his people. 
It's why he knows that exile isn't the end, because exile is never the end for God's people. This is why he makes the audaciously bold claim that he does in verse 24. So look what he says there. The Lord is faithful, he said in in verse 23. And in verse 24, he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Not my house, not my land, not my friends, not my family, not what I think I know, not what I own, These aren't my portion. All these can be and are taken away. But there is one thing the Lamentus says that is his portion. And he says, it is the Lord. This call of hope that we get in Lamentations is one that has grit in its teeth. It's not one that's just floating along smooth and hoping for good, pleasant times. This is a hope that's rugged, that's firm, that's stable, that's rooted deep because this hope knows it's God. And it knows that the story that it's God is working together is one that is repeated. God always is faithful to his people even when, especially when, it looks like he's not. This is when God's mercy shines forth all the more. The lamentist knows this. You and I need to know this because this is the hope that we have. It is a gritty, rugged, durable hope that God delivers his people. Indeed, his his mercies are new every morning. And each morning is a sign that despite its best efforts, the night has come to an end. We read Psalm 30, verse 5 earlier, that weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Nights have a tendency to be the worst. This is true of one night in particular. Read out of John 13, picking up in verse 21, John tells us this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, and Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after, receiving of the, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Jesus tells his disciples that they should remember this night. That's because it's at the cross that God's mercy is poured out most clearly. The weeping may last through the night, joy comes in the morning. His mercies are new every morning. And if we want to see mercy in its full, glorious effect, where do we look? Well, we look to Good Friday morning, where we see our Savior on the tree for you and for me. And we see God's mercies rushing forth. It's strange, isn't it? That God's mercies are seen most clearly in the death of his son. It is, however, Jesus' death that gives Lamentations 3 its staying power. How is it that we can declare that God's mercies are new every morning? How is it that we can declare, great is your faithfulness? We say all those things, we believe all those things, because we've seen those things. These aren't mere hopes that like, okay, I hope one day God will do this. These are statements of what God has done, so that now we have hopes that God will do what God has said he will do. And so we're a remembering people. We remember that God's mercy is seen clearly in the death of Jesus. As we look at that, we finally have our answer to Lamentations 5. Has God forever cast off his people? No, he he hasn't. And how do we know that? We know that because he put his son to death. We know that his mercy is new every morning, that his faithfulness is indeed great. And we remember that regularly as we partake of communion together. It's as we do this that we are reminding one another of who Jesus is, of what he's done, of the hope that we have, and that our Savior will indeed come again. And so this meal is a meal for Christians. It's a meal for Christians because it's a meal that declares our trust, our faith, our hope in Jesus, the one who was taken to the cross, who was bloodied and beaten for our sake, whose death brings us forgiveness, and whose life brings us hope and a future. And so that's what we have the privilege of celebrating and remembering this morning. And so if you're sitting in this room and and you're trusting in Jesus, if your hope and your faith is placed in him and you look back to the cross and remember that there God's mercy was displayed and you received forgiveness, then we welcome you to participate in this meal together with us. If that's not true of you, we ask that you don't participate. Stay put, stay with us, Watch what's happening and talk to someone around you. 
See, we serve a merciful God who's in the business of saving people. And what he's done for me and for you, he can do for others. So if you're here and you're following Jesus, there should be a little cup and wafer in the pew rack in front of you. Let me invite you to go ahead and grab that. In this meal, we remember Jesus' death. We rejoice that our sins are forgiven. And we anticipate his coming again. And, And as we eat, we trust, and I think this is particularly important for us here at the cusp of a new year, we trust that this is one of the ways that Jesus has given his people to have the peace, the courage, the endurance, the grace to persevere and continue on. And so feel free to go ahead and remove that top layer. I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians 11. This is the fullest directions that we get on the Lord's Supper. This is Paul writing to uh, the church in Corinth who was a royal mess, which hopefully gives us some hope. They too found strength and hope and courage in doing this together. And so we, we join in the long line of faithful brothers and sisters who've, who found joy and hope in this. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus As we break the bread between our teeth, we remember your body broken for us. We remember that you, the Holy One, humbled yourself and became obedient, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And as we are reminded of your body broken, We pray that you would indeed strengthen us, that you would give us grace to press on and to fix our eyes on you, the resurrected one. Amen. Verse 25. In the same way, also, he, Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we find ourselves in awe that you not only took on flesh, but poured out your blood on behalf of sinners like us. 
those of us who weren't looking for you, trying to please you, or caring about you. You stood in our place. You gave up your life. You emptied your blood. We look forward to the day when you will drink the fruit of the vine new in the kingdom of heaven, when you will raise us to life everlasting, and when all that is wrong will be, broke, will be right. So give us faith, give us courage, give us hope to endure to that end. Have your way with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and